This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. Well, all right, this is as good a time as any to get things started. Welcome to TGIF DCT on Clubhouse. And for those of you that are listening through our podcast, welcome to the Decentralized Podcast. We gather here live every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, uh, with guests on a range of topics meant to improve access to research. If you're able to join us live, fabulous. Welcome for the folks that join us live. We usually spend about half of our time with the guests or guests and then enjoy the opportunity to open the room for your feedback, your questions, your experiences. If you're joining us through our podcast, be sure to follow the podcast and maybe see if there's a Friday at noon where you're able to join us live. It's always great to have more folks here in the room with us. As always, if you have a topic that you'd love to see us cover, drop a note, let us know. Easiest way, aside from just messaging myself, Amir Kalali, Jane Miles, on LinkedIn or Twitter, you can also send an email to secretariat at dtra.org. Let us know if there is a topic you'd love to see us cover or if you'd like to be a guest on an upcoming program. In our past conversations, we've covered topics from patient factors around experience, access, diversity. We cover technical topics around interoperability, regulatory and compliance considerations, site concerns around adoption and implementation. And so there's a wide range of topics we're able to cover here. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Craig Lipset. I'll be your host today. I'm the co-chair of DTRA, the Decentralized Trials and Research Alliance. I am not being joined by my other co-hosts as usual. Amir Kalali and Jane Miles are both up in the air, but I am being joined by a, a longtime friend, Kendall Whitlock. And it's really a pleasure to have Kendall here this week. You know, the topic for this week is really topical. Um, CVS obviously had been in the clinical trial space and folks were excited about it. And this week, CVS announced that they'll be leaving the clinical trial space. And that certainly generated a lot of buzz and news and headlines. But it was really reassuring for many to see leadership from Walgreens come out with a very clear message around their commitment to the clinical trial space. So with that in mind, Kendall, welcome to TGIF DCT. Thanks so much, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here and see everyone, familiar faces as well as new faces in the room today. So thank you for the invitation. 
Now, Kendall, you've been around the clinical trial space for more than a minute. Um, <laughs> you know, we've, we've gone back a bit. For folks that haven't had the pleasure, can you share a little bit about your, your background and then maybe a little bit about what it is that you're doing yourself at Walgreens today, your role? My pleasure. So I've been in the pharma industry for 25 plus years. I've uh, gone through a variety of roles. I started my career early as a medical science liaison across disease categories. And for the last 13 years prior to this past year, which I am celebrating my one year anniversary with the Walgreens RWE clinical trials team, um, I was in the digital clinical trials team uh, with my former employer and had the opportunity to work on the Metasite strategic engagement. So building out a uh, partnership uh, through a community network of investigators for decentralized clinical trials, change management and education for both healthcare providers, patients and community. Um, I've had a variety of roles in industry, but currently my role at Walgreens is the head of digital optimization in the clinical trials business. Very exciting and happy anniversary. I mean, thank you. Uh, Can you believe it's been a year? It's crazy. <laughs> I it feels like a it feels like a minute, and no doubt it's been a really, a really busy year. Oh my gosh! In ways that I can't even begin to explain now. I I still pinch myself that this is actually happening because. Every day is exciting. Every day is an opportunity to learn new things. Um, I think the most um, germane thing about where we are today is the enthusiasm of the people who are coming to Walgreens. We started off uh, even prior to my arrival. Uh, Ramita Tandon, our chief trials officer, was a two-person team. We joined shortly after as four people, and now the team is over 50. So we are growing the infrastructure, um, which is timely, as you said, and there are things we'll get into in this discussion today. But the enthusiasm of the people, to me, is a signal of the commitment to the change that we have expected that we could achieve together. So um, every day is a great day. <laughs> Kendall, let me build on that with the people, because one thing I had seen uh, some conversation online about when CVS left the space was, well, they learned that clinical trials are hard. But I knew a lot of the people at CVS, like I know folks like you at Walgreens, and I think you guys are pretty eyes wide open. You have been in this space for a while. Can you talk a little bit about the types of people, the types of talent that have come together at Walgreens? What kind of backgrounds do these folks have? Our oh my goodness, it's it's more exciting than than uh, what I've shared thus far. So, the clinical trials team is coming together with people who have vast industry experience, decades long experience. Our head of our WE has been doing real world evidence for twenty years. Uh, there is a team of senior epidemiologists, data scientists, those who are on the study conduct side, on the decentralized trial leads. They also come with decades of experience, traditional research teams, as well as our commercial team. So these are not strangers or new to the clinical research ecosystem. And bringing all of this to bear uh, across the functional uh, units within our division of Walgreens means that sponsors can um, work with us knowing that they are not working with people who are just stepping into clinical trials for the first time. It may be new to contemplate the retail pharmacy 
in the ecosystem. But being an emerging partner doesn't mean people are new to the conversation. So uh, just like you, I have talked to friends at CVS. And while a company may have transition and any stakeholder, whether you are a technology partner or a community-based organization, all organizations go through evolution for what kind of organization they are. It doesn't mean that the people change fundamentally in the organizations, though. And so I can say that there are champions among us. <laughs> That's great to hear. Do you have folks in on the team that have experience at the site level that have been coordinators or worked in the uh, on the site side of the business? We do, and I'm happy to say that they are uh, actively uh, um, working on trials, which is why some of them are not here today. Um, we get reports daily on the progress that this team is making, and in some ways, it's kind of like the good news. Just when you think uh, in, an, in a work environment that a Friday in the evening would be the time people are ready to close their laptops and shut it down, uh, a Friday afternoon here among our team is a, is a signal of what people have done in their trial activities during the week and ongoing and the feedback we're getting from sponsors. So that continuity of our clinical trials business is something that our sponsors and clients can feel confident in us that um, you know things are not slowing down or changing. If anything, they are accelerating and our people are there to usher it in. It is all hands on deck. No doubt. No doubt. So mm -hmm. I, um, I had a good sense of what CVS's model had been evolving into. There was kind of a, a recruitment vertical at the pharmacy. There was uh, work around real world evidence. Uh, there was the, um, the ability, for, in their case, for some home visits because of an acquisition they had made in years past, Quorum Clinical, and then the, the, the work to try to enable study conduct at their, at their locations. Mm -hmm. Walgreens has different infrastructure and, and a different uh, story. What are the types of capabilities that Walgreens, that, that you're prioritizing today in terms of capabilities to support trials? Sure, sure. So um, structurally, our service lines are threefold. They start with patient recruitment, um, at home or decentralized trials is the second service line, and RWE is the third service line. So you should know in the senior leadership of the business, across that set of 50 people, there's a head of product, uh, me head of uh, digital optimization, which encompasses patient and community engagement. And I'll get into a little bit of the detail there. But what really drives the engine is the foundational investments in technology and data solutions. And that provides us with a very strong competitive advantage in the clinical trials market. And combining these patient insights, I mean, if you think about it, we can stitch together pharmacy records and electronic medical records to give a real perspective for a sponsor. When they hand us a protocol, we can let them know exactly what we're working with and not just from the pharmacy record itself, but by demonstrating more of the ability to screen, uh, enroll, and then monitor patients because of our infrastructure. We hope to accelerate the clinical trials process and enhance the quality of the output. No, it's exciting to hear. I mean, we've we've been doing, many of us have worked with companies like Walgreens and CVS for years for recruitment just based on pharmacy claims data, mm -hmm. which can be useful if you're on something like metformin, but if you're on prednisone, methotrexate, who knows 
what underlying health condition you have without having that other data to be able to link and to understand what the what the actual diagnosis is rather than just trying to base it off of a off of a prescription claim itself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's important to have that perspective and it's not just the the pharmacy when we when we talk about the retail pharmacy space and of any pharmacy any stakeholder in the ecosystem we think about not just primary care disease categories but Walgreens also has specialty care and through that specialty model and physical location there is a different way of engaging with patients and the stickiness, if you will, of patients being able to know that they'll hear from their pharmacy shortly after their prescription is filled, we begin to build out understanding of what patients' needs may be. And one of the things that we are building out there is understanding how to better serve patients, not just in ensuring the adherence to the medication or hearing about whether or not they have questions about their medication. But we know that um, a person on any medication, no matter what they are taking that medication for, has other things going on in their lives that could impact and influence the success of being on that treatment. So uh, there's learning for us in how to better serve of patients and communities in that setting. And for for the recruitment um, vertical, is that primarily sending out letters or are we trying to do things at the pharmacy counter as well? I'm glad you asked this because this is a, this is an area that is a hybrid, if you will, across the organization. We work cross-functionally on most parts of the business, but we do have a head of patient recruitment and in patient recruitment and retention, uh, at least at this juncture in our early um, evolution of the business, they are focusing at this stage on primarily email and text messaging in conjunction with our outreach campaign. But we also are leveraging our in-store presence. So if you think about the long run and the long-term solution, that omni-channel approach, we know that not all patients are going to be reached equally through email and or text messaging campaigns. So in what ways we can think about enabling the point-of-care store uh, from the store uh, perspective and ways that some patients may engage with the pharmacy um, by physical presence and maybe they want to hear from a physical person. So this is more of of an omni-channel approach. And so although we start with email and text for some of the campaigns that we are currently running, there is a longer term plan to integrate the use of some of the digital tools beyond those two. Look, I, I think it's people. great to <laughs> lean in that digital direction, but I have to imagine that the open rate for emails or texts uh, coming from Walgreens, look, I, I fill prescriptions at Walgreens. If I get an email from Walgreens, I'm gonna open it because I fill scripts there. Um, so I imagine that the open rate has to be pretty darn good, but even then just layering digital on top of that is just is just even better. Yeah, and I'm glad you, you brought up this point, Craig, because it's one we talk about often. A person with an email address does not necessarily routinely use email. Similarly, a person with a telephone number, we may have 98% of of our uh, patients' telephone numbers, but it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone uses it for text messaging. And I've said this in many settings before, and um, you know, if she comes back to hit me on the back of my head, uh, my 89-year-old mother is not going to text you back for the outreach campaign that uses text messaging. So I have to be candid about the need for the, the alternate solutions for people. Um, 
um, the backup plan, so to speak. And so we've got to we've got to meet people. And I know that sounds cliche to say we meet people where they are, but we first have to look, understand what are people's communication preferences and respect that if they don't want to use a certain channel, that we find the alternative that's best suited for them. That includes linguistic and and culturally appropriate uh, services. So we can get into that a little bit in detail, but just wanted to make sure I put an asterisk on that. Very well said. Great reminder to make sure for all demographics. Talk to me about the the at home or decentralized work. What what is that starting to shake out as in terms of of capabilities? And does Walgreens want to support existing sites or also play the role of being an investigator at times? I think in the the most simplistic way to say it is it's a hub and uh, spoke and hub model or hub and spoke model. And I think that when identifying uh, for a sponsor who may have existing sites that they uh, would like to deploy for any given protocol, we can complement those sites. This this is not an effort to remove or replace existing um, personnel or staff because we know that sometimes the performance in one location may be very different than another geography. But what's what's complementary allows the existing relationship to persist while having an alternative or complementary set of um, individuals who, where the point of entry might be the retail pharmacy, maybe someone that's coming. Uh, I don't know if you're aware that of the 9,000 locations in this country, uh, 7,000 of the 9,000 locations have a private health room. And in some ge geographic areas, like where our clinical trial sites have been set up thus far, those services in that private health room have a nurse trained professional, for example, or someone who can be the point of the start of the discussion. So what's what's unique about that is um, that sites are not being cut out of the equation. If anything, they are in partnership with ongoing studies. Um, and I think that's an opportunity to to maintain continuity for the patients and what they expect and are familiar with. And Kendall, it sounds like some of these locations you're looking to staff differently. You're looking to actually embed some more dedicated research staff. Yes, um, Adam Sampson is our head of study conduct, and I have to say, Adam gets complimented on this team often, not just by external stakeholders, but internally for the um, the presence of a diverse and cross-sectional set of staff members on his team. Um, there are geographic areas that have different needs, and Adam is building out the study conduct team to better offer the representation of the team so that going into the geographies uh, across the country, people will be able to have some concordance with people who may have a similar lived experience as theirs. And I think that that can go bode well for uh, retention, not only for recruitment, but also for retention and trials. You mentioned as far as diversity, and, and I wonder if that's going to be a um a part of the, the longer term stickiness for Walgreens in this space. I feel like I, I, there's a lot of signal that clinical trials are a health equity topic for, for Walgreens. Is that, is that marketing or is that really where you're, you're living inside of the Walgreens organization right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is that is a part of the remit in the foundation of why the business was launched in the first place. Uh, those on the line may or may not know that upwards of 51% of the stores in this country are in socially vulnerable communities. And it's important to think about what socially vulnerable is defined by, by CDC, which is the definition that we use. But socially vulnerable is not necessarily the same thing, not superimposable over all diverse categories. And when we talk about diverse categories, we may most be familiar with 
race or ethnicity, but we've got to think about clinical trials more broadly and whether or not we are relevant for older adult populations who are often also excluded from clinical trials, uh, persons long-term who have different needs, different abilities. We've got to think about ways to meet, again, people where they are. So when we talk about diversifying clinical trials, we may be beginning this journey in the race and ethnicity categories, but it's more broad in, in its horizon to think about how we are meeting the needs of many types of patient populations so that there is representation that marries the epi um, in a given disease category. We're trying to increase the quality of the science that comes from trials. And I think that at the retail level, um, there's a better opportunity to, to reach people and to educate people because people may not, if only 5% of the people worldwide are participating in clinical trials now, that is a playground of people that may find interest in knowing more about what a clinical trial is. If we think about the fact that earlier this year, Craig, you and I participated on a, a post-webinar after the emergency preparedness uh, uh, roundtable that was hosted by the White House, and, and Rob Califf made very clear that if we were to enter another pandemic, we have to have an emergency preparedness for the clinical trials infrastructure. That, to me, underscores the importance of where this industry is heading in terms of who knows and is in conversation with a trusted healthcare professional about clinical trials. This is not just one stakeholder owning the space. This is about all hands being on deck so that people have a fair and equitable opportunity to get an invitation. A lot of people who say they would have participated had they been asked just simply were not asked to participate. They won't talk to them about a clinical trial. So I think there's, I mean, we're in a in, a, in an enviable position um, in being in the right place at the right time with the right tools. It feels like those are the the three levers I hear talked about most. It's about um, trust. It's about invitation. It's about access, mm -hmm. right? Trust that, you know, it's so funny. As I'm talking to you, I just got a text message from Walgreens Pharmacy to come pick <laughs> up my prescription. I love it. I love it. I love oh, God. It. That was pretty well timed. <laughs> well, well done, Kendall. You got Very you, nice. You, well done. Um, we'll see if that also comes with a prompt about a clinical trial. I might be right, able to rock on Walgreens. Um, yes. um, but you know, the, these feel like the three levers. And if Walgreens is in the community and is local to be a trusted brand, if they're able to support the invitation that so many people feel they're being denied, and then have that third pillar around those strategies to improve access and make these trials accessible. It feels like these are the three pillars for most diversity action plans today. Uh, Craig, you couldn't be more spot on. If we think about it, um, businesses change all the time. That is not new to us and it is not new to the space of the stakeholders in the ecosystem. You know, our why has not changed and providing a point of entry for those who are, especially those who are most significantly burdened by their own lived experience, having that convenience of having that trusted source in your community. And it's not limited to one type of trust. Again, I, I say this um, often that trust is not one thing and where it borders is on relevance. Is this activity? Is this topic? Is Are these people, the, the research uh, enterprise, is it relevant? 
And if patients and communities don't understand the relevance of what clinical trials are in the context of their care, then having a trusted source right in their community who they, again, trusted source that they already trust, it's not like we have to start from scratch there. So we have confidence in people and people have agency and discernment. And having come through this pandemic and now that the emergency use authorizations have expired, people still have expectations to have access. And we are privileged to be in a position to be five miles from 80% of the country and to serve those needs. CVS was was um, visible in the space until they weren't and it got deprioritized there. I keep wondering if health equity is going to be the reason that Walgreens has staying power here. For those that aren't familiar, Roz Brewer, the CEO of Walgreens, a woman of color, probably one of only from what I've read, two black women that are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. You know, I, I wonder if, if this is going to create a different level of commitment for Walgreens and help drive some of the, the staying power. You know, Craig, I can tell you, I have watched Roz Brewer's career for a very long time. And the inspiration in who she is and the decisions that she's made over her career have inspired so much in my own career and my own decision architecture. And foundationally, when I met Ramita Tandon and I had already watched Roz Brewer and the commitment that I heard them discuss in communities that were black and brown that were already disproportionately impacted, especially during the COVID pandemic. If we think about the fact that there were five-fold higher hospitalizations, three-fold higher mortality rates. And I heard our CEO discuss the fact that because Walgreens is already a trusted partner in communities, we can do more. So for me, this was about a mission to change the mindsets of who we saw the retail pharmacy becoming. And in our vision, the retail pharmacy is becoming a healthcare destination. And it is more than just a place to pick up your prescription. In these strategic partnerships, by acquiring Village MD and by Village MD acquiring Summit Health and expanding the primary care footprint, we know that many people in this country don't have continuity of care. So by providing that alone, we are looking at the future and thinking more people will have someone that's proximate to where their needs are. Also, a strategic partnership with CareCentrics. CareCentrics is an at-home service provider. And what that enables us to do, especially for minority communities, is to meet people who do not drive anymore. And perhaps they don't have the uh, caregiver who can provide that access for them. Maybe they are willing. We can't make assumptions that people are a certain demographic and therefore they're hard to reach. And we can't continue in this industry to discuss conversations with each other about difficult to reach or harder to reach populations. Sometimes the simplicity is that they just didn't have transportation to get to care, not that they don't want care or that they wouldn't take care from you or you or you. Um, we also have a new relationship with Uber that is further enabling the transportation issue of those who do want to come to care to have that continuity, that access, that point of entry so that they don't have to fear not getting the care that they need. So I could go on there, but I think that the vision that Roz Brewer set out for what Walgreens is becoming is the beacon that we have and stand behind and stand with, quite frankly, um, in this effort. And it's not just Walgreens, it's Walgreens and our stakeholders. So that's each of you here in this call and in this work. 
Kendall, you reminded me of a disclosure I should probably drop <laughs> that my wife is a family physician at Summit Health, which is now makes her a part of the uh, the Walgreens oh, nice. universe. So uh, as a as a primary care doc, so it is uh, it is fascinating to see the the different tentacles and the different extensions that are are happening. You know, Kendall, I from a lot of the far, friends in pharma that I talk to that had been you know, working with CVS over the last year or two, the sentiment seemed very positive. It felt like you know, the model can work. And I wonder, you've been at this yourself now for a year with Walgreens. Have you seen any surprises? Is there anything that didn't work that you thought that would or worked that you thought that wouldn't? Is there anything that you know, over this past year that jumps out to you as, uh, as, as, a, as an aha like that? The only thing I can say definitively is that the momentum has not stabilized. So when I first joined one year ago, I knew that uh, even though the pharma organization that I was with was large and a global organization and also 100 plus, you know, 130 plus years old and Walgreens is 120 some years old, I thought, okay, at some point this will level and I will get, you know, my footing. But it seems to be a continuous um, influx. And I think that that is indicative of the number of stakeholders in the ecosystem who are continuing to come online into the possibility of what does that mean for the retail pharmacy to be in clinical trials? I think that the starting point was not one place and forward, it is continuous and it expands to multiple stakeholders. So while it's not surprising, um, you know, it, it is a it is a challenge for all of us to uh, absorb um, because we are only the one individual that we are. And if you think about um, on average, how many emails a person gets a day or um, how many meetings one has a day, I can say that I probably have three times the number of meetings and about five times the number of emails uh, to respond to. So if I haven't gotten back to anybody on the call, I apologize. <laughs> it's simply that I, you know, I'm one person and, and you know, between um, presenting it, um, to different stakeholder audiences, it's just a tremendous volume. So other than that, I can't say that anything has truly been surprising or that anything has not worked that I thought would work. I think that the, the infrastructure is growing um, and naturally growing. And I think that one of the coolest things is how many people in the team are interested in contributing in different ways than even the role that they came for because of the commitment to seeing the impact of the change that we're pursuing. So that to me is, um, is surprising, um, but not, you know, it's just cool to have. Well, we are at the uh, halfway point here, and that's always a great reminder for me to welcome anyone that's just stepping in and joining us. If you're here live with us on Clubhouse, welcome to TJFDCT. Uh, we do gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, live to talk about different topics around decentralizing research, making clinical trials more accessible. If you're joining us through the Decentralized podcast, Welcome to you as well, and be sure you give a follow there so you can stay current if there's any other special drops that we may add during the week. We listen to you for the topics that are important, so if you have something you'd love to hear us cover in the weeks ahead, drop a note to myself, Jane Miles, Amir Kalali, or 
If you don't know how to reach any of us on LinkedIn or Twitter, just send an email to secretariat at dtra.org. This week, in the wake of CVS's withdrawal from the clinical trial space, I'm thrilled that we are joined by a special guest, Kendall Whitlock from Walgreens, talking about their staying power in this space and what they're starting to see as trends and signals. Now, this is the time when we like to open up the room and, and hear from you. What are the questions on your mind? And I'm seeing a lot of great questions in the chat that we'll start to curate and go through. But if you'd like to jump on stage and lend your voice to the conversation, have an experience to share, you've got a little hand raising icon. If you're here with us live on Clubhouse, feel free to give it a tap and join the conversation. By the way, I see Jane, you were able to jump in with us. It's always good to have you here, Jane. I'm glad you're on the ground. Hi, Jane. Hey, surprise. <laughs> I'm in downtown San Francisco, so I'm going to be quiet because it's not quiet around me. But thank you so much, Kendall, for joining. I know everyone's super excited about this topic. Kendall, I'm going to start to turn to some of the questions. I'm going to take a glimpse through. And of course, if folks want to raise their hand and jump up, let me know. But while I'm taking a look through, Kendall, I can't help but think, you, myself, Jane, we've all been on the pharma side, and we've all been on that pharma side of trying to help bring new partners and innovative partners into the organization. It is a tremendous amount of work. There is a ton of blocking and tackling and navigating and getting buy-in from all these different stakeholders. I would imagine there are a number of folks in pharma that did that to get CVS into their organization. And now they're facing others in their organization looking back saying, what just happened? We went through all of this effort. Um, should we just drop what we're doing? Do we make a migration to another partner? If you put on your, your, your former pharma hat, how would you help coach or, or guide a, a decision maker in pharma right now that maybe feels like they, they put a lot of energy and political capital internally into bringing in a partner that just walked? Is it, is it safe waters to, to try another partner? Yeah, I can't speak for any one organization. And what I think would be useful is to think about what reason the company or the, the organization had for trying the model of, of retail pharmacy in the first place. And if their why was that they need access to patients who historically are not proximate to sites, then their why has still not yet been satisfied. And if the model of Walgreens clinical trials meets their needs, then I think it is worth an exploratory discussion. And we are, I can tell you our folks are, which is part of why I have 11,000 emails in my inbox and I'm not exaggerating. Um, the entire team is, is, in discussions with a number of people at this time uh, because of that influx and because that question in, in pharma's mind of, I, I dipped my toe in the water, I have gone through the requisite channels internally to get the buy-in, as you said, and now you know we're left sort of uh, stranded. But we know that this is not going to take place for any of them overnight, so this will be a transition plan. Um, but that's that kind of speaks to why this uh, strengthening of the clinical trials infrastructure is essential at this time. And it's not in preparation only for the next pandemic, but because we haven't done a good enough job of solving the problems that are historic challenges in clinical trials. And if we have all bought in uh, collectively in this ecosystem to start to leverage digital tools, for example, thinking about telemedicine, 
people have discovered telemedicine by necessity, but now that the the emergency use authorization of certain things, although telemedicine is not going away in the foreseeable near term, we've got to think about whether or not we can maintain the things that we learned work for patients. And the pharma companies that are contemplating, should we give you know another another organization a try? I think it, at a minimum they owe themselves the discussion to determine if if we are not the right partner for themselves, why are they not the right partner? Not that they should retract to business as usual and not consider the option of the retail pharmacy space. Great points. I mean, there is a a clear pain point in this system that drove folks to explore new partners. That pain has not gone away. Our current models are clearly not sustainable. They're not working. They didn't work well before COVID. (laughs) And COVID certainly only exposed the the, the further gaps and weaknesses that we have. And so uh, hopefully for those that did that effort, that blocking and tackling and advocacy, the case is still there and they'll be able to continue and sustain their work. Um, looking at some of the questions in the chat, um, we have a we have a confused Joe Dustin in the room. Um, Joe is wondering, uh, you guys don't want to be a CRO, do you? You want to be a, a split no. to sites? <laughs> no. I think that when we talk about the hub and spoke model, we're talking about the a couple of things. One, we know that many investigators in communities are not often the investigators that are identified for clinical trial participation. And if we know that we can diversify and expand the number of investigators who participate in clinical trials, then maybe we take the set of sites that a sponsor wants to start with and complement that set of sites with additional sites by being those additional community organizations that have investigators um, whose patient populations would logically make sense for a given trial. I think it's important to think about the number of people who are leaving clinical trials. I think that we've all talked about this in different settings that uh, being an investigator, we know there's a high percentage of those who do one trial only and not having the expertise of those kinds of professionals means that we need a succession plan. We need to know where investigators are being trained and we know that there are organizations who are focused on this to ensure that there are numbers of trained professionals who can be an investigator in clinical trials and geographically they are proximate to where patients are so that we're not trying to separate that relationship from the provider and the patient that exists. We're trying to complement the infrastructure that exists. Thanks so much, Kendall. Another question in the chat asks about XUS. People know about, you know, in the, in the past, there was the work with Walgreens and Boots. Um, are there plans for this model XUS or are you just heads down on the US for right now? In the short term, we are focused on US right now, but Boots is still very much a part of the Walgreens Boots Alliance. And we have had discussions XUS, but for the moment, we are focused on the US only. Makes sense. Makes sense. There's certainly plenty of uh, plenty of room for uh, for making things right here in the US. Um, Rob is asking, you know, we talked about it's still kind of lumpy out there in terms of uh, in terms of uh, commitment and momentum. What what do you feel it's going to take for momentum in this market to stabilize? Do we all have to go through this period of experimentation to get there? 
When you say uh, lumpy or experimentation, can you be a little more specific? <laughs> well, I don't know you know, it feels like everyone's kind of kicking the tires and some are taking a step forward and maybe a step back. But what's it going to take for this to, well, to just become normal? Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad. Okay, now that clears that question up. Um, there are going to be some difficult conversations along the way. Um, one of the things that is coming out and is top of mind um, is the need to look at bias in the system. And if we know from larger analyses that when you solve for other things and all other things are equal, there are still inherent biases all the way through. So not just in clinical trials, but in clinical care. And we, when we talk about um, GCP training, when we talk about becoming professionals in this space, we often don't also include the mitigation of biases in the way that we do this. And so what you'll see, I think, more often than, than um, a seg sub-segment of the work that we have in front of us, uh, not done by, say, the DEI folks, because that gets pigeonholed and put into a corner and often put in the shelf or left as an afterthought. I think what will become necessary to smooth out our journey in the short term as well as over time is the need to kind of look in the mirror. And I mean, as a stakeholder set across all sectors, not just the tech sector, but the clinical sector and, and others in the ecosystem and do some self-examination of the reasons we do some of the things that we do. If we think about modifying a protocol or pressure testing with patient insight and experience, we can hear from senior leaders in pharma that are frustrated clinicians who say, we keep copy and pasting the inclusion exclusion criteria each subsequent trial. When are we going to start interrogating that set of inclusion exclusion criteria to start to do what the guidances are starting to recommend, which is to loosen to the extent that we can where it's clinically permissible the inclusion exclusion criteria to expand who trials can include because if we do a good enough job of raising awareness about the relevance of clinical trials in the context of care but then we have to shut the door because there's too astringent a set of inclusion exclusion criteria for reasons only of the cut and paste then we have to start to ask well why didn't we challenge ourselves and challenge our mindset to or you know did we do we have fatigue in our processes if ours if our Professionals are growing fatigued in either doing mundane or rote or repeating experiences or tasks, but maybe they can expand the approach and the lens that they apply. Maybe if they thought they were solving a different problem or reaching new patients in a different way or reaching existing patients with a new lens, there might be enthusiasm for the work that they do, not fatigue in the work that they do. So I think that when we start to frame the necessity to interrogate our biases in the approach that we take, we will reach patients and communities and grow a population of people who have discernment and agency in their choice to participate as informed people, not as folks who are looking at a clinical trial as an option of last resort. So, um... Ritesh, in addition to pointing out that Joe is often confused, also is wondering about, this is sort of a build on what we were just talking about, what, do, what are you facing as the most common barrier or pushback from a sponsor today when you're in there discussing with them? What, what's kind of the biggest hurdle that they need to overcome in order to, in order to try and move this direction with pharmacy? You know, 
I think that there, there are hurdles internally as well as externally. And some of those are in one company, for example, the group that makes decisions about clinical trials is not the same group that does strategic engagement or patient advocacy and or other the, the, the chief health equity officer. Um, those are maybe different budgets often and, and different decision makers. And so it's a matter for people in organization in pharma to look at who are the decision makers, not only of the budget, but of the outreach plan and of the approach that we're taking that's going to be the one that rises to the top in the strategy and not the one that um, those who are in a different role uh, may talk about amongst themselves, but doesn't usually get factored in in the final plan. And specifically, we've got to come together inside of pharma to stitch who is expert at community engagement. If we think about community-based participatory research, there is a history of experience in knowing how to reach diverse communities. That could be brought to bear inside the context of clinical operations discussions when we think about budgeting for the clinical trial. Because if we know we haven't done the job of improving diversity in clinical trials over the decades, then we can think about starting earlier and starting a little bit differently by modifying the approach that we take, not just starting with, okay, hey, here's the bolus of the emails that we have, and here's the bolus of the phone numbers we have for the email and text campaign. But what do patients start with? Where are patients starting the discussion? If they're starting the discussion at the trial level, in some cases that may be too late. There may be groundwork to do up front so that you have a sense of what patient's readiness is in a given area for a given trial. And I think it's really important to think about that upstream and think about if it's not only you who manages the therapeutic area budget in the ClinOps team, but who else you need to partner with in order for your trial to be successful. Hey, uh, Emma, can I go back to a topic that you were talking about? Jane, you're, maybe... you're fading out on us. Um, okay. can, you, can you get a little closer? Any better than a little better? Let's see how okay. it goes. So just a few minutes ago, you were talking about giving people agency and choice. The thread I wanted to pull on here is data I heard from Tufts a while ago, where they determined between 15 and 40% of patients get excluded basically on the basis of physical characteristics when they walk in the door at a research site, a traditional research site. So I'm curious, do you think that that still holds and how can Walgreens help overcome that? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, Jane, because it's an interesting um, addition to those who work in clinical trials specifically or traditional trialists. They may not have a health equity lens in the application, and some may just have blind spots. It's not a deliberate, um, uh, people do not deliberately not do something or do something. They may be unconsciously unaware that it is something to do. So one of the things that we are building out is a a proposed framework for equitable digital clinical trials. And that includes first establishing a vision and the strategy for it. Um, but we have to have that functional oversight of those who are going to train, uh, first starting with an assessment of where are we now? Um, we don't know of our um, inherent biases, and there are a lot of validated and reliable instruments that can be used 
to do that self-examination, both at the individual level and at the organizational level. You've got to establish KPIs also based on where your organization starts or where you as an individual start. For example, I'll give you um, one of the one of the um, assessments that can be done. Sometimes there's a judgment where men are perceived to be um, to go into more scientific um, and engineering fields, and women are more um, homemaker uh, professions or helping professions. That's a bias, and that that means that if a person has that type of tendency to look at a, a male female um, dichotomy, then they may unconsciously reserve certain things for men and withhold certain things from women and vice versa. So there are a lot of examples like that in the assessments that one can then use to measure where you are on the continuum of seeing things a certain way. Um, you know, this is, doesn't mean that people are bad people. It means we all come from where we come from. You know, we were a certain age, a certain race, ethnicity, a certain geography. Um, we all have influences and we can't ignore the influences in the way that we show up and do the tasks that we do in the context of clinical research. I often, you'll, you'll often hear me talk about cultural and linguistically appropriate services standards. And this came up in a meeting uh, just yesterday. And one of the things that I hope we get to talk about also is just the use of real world data and, and evidence generation um, in the context of clinical trials. But specifically in cultural and linguistically appropriate services standards, it's not okay to just take your document um, and say, okay, well, we've translated it into this other language, boot, we're done. Because sometimes uh, Spanish is not the same in you know, a Mexican population that it is in a, a Puerto Rican population or those who are from Spain. So we've got to also factor in, in resources that we create, the cultural differences between people. And that may sound like a, a Herculean task and a huge undertaking financially. But if we don't do that for people, then that's not meeting people where they are. And so the the inherent um, biases that we sometimes are unaware of are being brought to bear in the tasks that we do. Um, there was a, a, an example in my former work uh, of the case report form, and we had hosted patient advocacy council meetings um, during the course of the prior year. And the patient population, and this is a cross-section of maybe 20 plus uh, patients of, of different types that informed us that in the case report form, if you see male, female, other, well, what exactly does other mean? And how, if you are transgender or a different uh, gender expression, then how are you represented in that form? And what are you doing with that information if it doesn't really describe, you know, for that patient, the me? And it was eye-opening for those inside of the, of the pharma company because some people had never contemplated that before. And so sometimes we have to get out of our own way to not presume that others live the way we in our privileged lives live. And if we can have the humility, the literal cultural humility, not just cultural competency, but the cultural humility to take a step back and pause and ask, is the person I'm talking about or talking to or the person I want to recruit, is there anything that I need to do differently than I would do in, a, in an other setting? you know, for somebody who might be recruited if it was me? Is there any, what if the person, you know, is, is wheelchair bound or maybe they, they're blind? How are we accommodating those with differences? Um, and this may be a longer conversation than we have time for, but I hope that starts to answer some of your question, Jane. 
So we've got still a, a, a number of great questions on the uh, on the chat over here. Um, here's here's one from Erin who's asking, how will you see prioritizing the balance of needs from urban communities versus rural ones? Clearly, access issues uh, are, are prevalent uh, for everyone. I'm so glad this question came up. And by urban, I'm I'm thinking that the question is specifically about perhaps the broadband deserts in the country and the percentage of Americans who don't live close to having Wi-Fi um, and maybe in populations of the country where even having a computer is not something that's routine for families and communities. And that means that one of the things that we are looking at is what are the limitations? If we are proposing hybrid uh, decentralized clinical trials in communities and there are broadband gaps, then we may need to partner with an organization that can help to strengthen what people understand about how to use those tools. Because if you don't have a computer and you don't routinely use a smartphone, then we wouldn't expect you to just have perhaps a provisioned phone in the context of a clinical trial and know how to navigate those devices. So being able to grow digital fluency uh, and digital literacy in the context of growing health literacy is a part of the strategic imperative under digital optimization, uh, because we can't, again, assume that everyone starts from the same point. Um, this is an area for our long-term roadmap, but I think that the partnerships that we can identify, and we have been in discussions with some internet service provider organizations who are doing great work um, in this area, as well as the um, Digital uh, Research Alliance, who is looking at trying to meet the needs of people um, who may have broadband deficiencies. There are a number of groups who are who are boots on the ground, um, trying to help people gain access to some of the subsidies that the government has made available. And there are significant subsidies for those in rural communities. I think there's a $75 subsidy um, to help to afford broadband services. And I think in um, urban environments, it's $35. I could be wrong on those specific dollar figures, but I think that those are the, the things that Americans can apply for if the disconnect is based on not having a Wi-Fi connection. Kendall, a question in the chat is asking about um, access to reliable real-world data, especially for baseline info on participants. You hinted a moment ago as far as some of the efforts happening around real-world data and real-world evidence and research at Walgreens. Can you expand on that a bit more? Sure. And I, I was uh, I called my my teammate, my counterpart, uh, Jim Carroll, who is head of our RWE team and has is growing an incredible group of professionals in this space because I had the privilege of participating yesterday at the Food Drug Law Institute annual meeting and um, spoke with a number of individuals who were from CEDAR and CBER and CDRH, um, as well as industry on this topic. And one of the things that I think is is relevant and we will see more of is the uh, integration of other data sources, whether it's registries or social determinants of health data. Um, those on this call are not unfamiliar with the the notion that our RCT data is only a, a lesser percentage, maybe 30% if, um, of what we use in clinical practice. And knowing that more of the social determinants of health are informing how people are cared for, then we've got to start to look at housing insecurity. We've got to start to look at food insecurity. We've got to start to look at education. Um, if we don't, then we stand a chance of having to have 
you know, that bolus at the top of the recruitment funnel. And it would be nice to have a more personalized approach to targeting those who may be more receptive to receiving that email and taking the action of going through the funnel. But first starting to look at those different data sources and ensure that there is, um, you know, that we don't have issues of interoperability. We've, that we've got a lot uh, of room to talk about that. Um, maybe we're running low on time, but I think that um, the interoperability issue gets talked about most often, but it's not the only issue. We've got to think about whether or not having that much information about people, that people want that much information about themselves. Sometimes, I mean, I hate to use a movie quote of saying sometimes people just don't want that um, source of truth. But the reality is that if, if we do have the ability to provide people um, a closer picture of their own needs and uh, build our solutions based on having that evidence or that data in, at our disposal, then the evidence that we generate from it um, may stand a better chance of being received when it comes to the package that we submit. And then when you have that engagement with, um, with individuals as participants, are, are you hoping to stay connected with them after the trial, continue to engage with them maybe in future research? Is this meant to become a almost like a sticky registry at Walgreens? You know, Craig, you couldn't be more spot on. I think that that last mile enablement is one of the distinguishing features of why Walgreens is a great partner in the clinical trials uh, business. And that is because we don't have to let go of patients at the end of the trial. We have opportunities. Uh, people are still going to fill their scripts and there are other parts of the organization that are focused on closing care gaps. And so if our patients who go through clinical trials through a Walgreens are still uh, the participants in ways that they can ensure getting screened at the appropriate time or getting services at the appropriate time, then the Walgreens because becomes someone different or something different to patients than just the place where they fill their prescription. So thank you for bringing that up. That last mile enablement is very important. Kendall, we've got about two minutes left. Let's be futurists for a minute. Let's assume these pieces are working and they're going to keep working. What is this field going to look like over the next five, seven years? What will clinical trials look like if this work is successful at scale? When the work yeah. is successful? Yeah, when the work is successful. Well, one of the things, Craig, that I hope to see is that the subject of representativeness or is an essential element of scientific data quality. We want to see not that this is something that is a sub-team task that some people work on, but that that is the standard, that matching the participation to the EPI is really the North Star. And if it's not a small group of people's responsibility to do it, it's everyone's responsibility to do it. And so if we're not asking ourselves how each role contributes to improving that representation in that trial, then rewrite the job description for those individuals who are not yet involved in the work because it is the industry goal, not the individual functional goal. I think also the continuation of adding patient voice and experience early in development, not as an afterthought later after something failed. I think when we talk about modifying protocols or having patient advisory boards or patient information exchanges, they are an integral voice of the design of a, a well-designed study. And I think that more and more um, that 
continuity of that um, we will see um, in the next five years. And then I've already talked about the, the use of and the integration of social determinant health data or registry data and, and helping to build out that real world evidence. I think that that's going to be in integral to disease management going forward. And then candidly, because patients have seen the benefits of things like telemedicine, being able to continue um, to think of ways creatively, think of the innovations in clinical research that can help to meet people where they are, even if that's a kiosk in the local faith-based organization um, and talked about by people who are not necessarily healthcare or life sciences professionals, but maybe community health workers, um, bringing more people into the conversation so that it normal it's normalized, whether it's the barbershop or um, the pharmacy. Kendall Whitlock, it is a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you for this lightning round of questions. Thank you for jumping on with us for this hour during your travels. I know there's a lot going on right now, but with everything in the news this week, this was a, just such a timely conversation, and we're really fortunate to have had you with us. Well, thank you again for the opportunity, Craig and Amir and Jane. It was a pleasure to be here with you, and I look forward to the next discussion. Stay tuned. Coming up on uh, TGIF DCT, be sure to give a follow and stay connected with us. If you have topics you'd love to see us cover, let us know. In the meantime, have a fabulous week. Thanks again, Kendall. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Craig. Take care.